This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're revisiting the theme of meditation, a hugely popular topic we've covered previously with my friend Marcus, and today we're coming into it with a a similar but different angle with a new guest. So to start off, we've got a definition from Headspace on what is meditation. Headspace is a service where you can try out meditation right from your phone that I've used and find really helpful. It's not an ad, we just really love it. So their definition is... Meditation isn't about becoming a different person, a new person, or a better person. It's about training in awareness and getting a healthy sense of perspective. You're not trying to turn off your thoughts or feelings. Instead, you're learning to observe them without judgment. And eventually, you may start to better understand them as well. Well, you know, I love that. That is just me in abundance. <laughs> I, it's 100% in the work that I do. It's really going back to, you know, coaching and supporting people in its simplest form. I guess there's a lot of unlearning, just getting to grips with that moment and understanding that your thoughts are just thoughts. They're not you. And how that talks about, you know, observing them without judgment. I think that's beautiful negative thoughts to manifest or anxiety and depression and all of the other things that we you know experience and struggle with right because it's it's a clear but important difference that when these thoughts become intrusive and become consistent enough that they can start to threaten your sense of self i think any of us have had occasional experiences of of weird thoughts coming up and the one that jumps to mind for me is sometimes you know you've you've crossed a road and then a car comes speeding just after you and you think god if I'd crossed a second later you know and there's a big difference between that versus if you're constantly focused on traffic and you're over checking or you're you're having these intrusive thoughts of oh what if you just stepped out now You know, if these things are common enough in your experience of mental ill health, they can start to encroach on how you view yourself. And also some of the research we found highlights this difference as well. In particular, we came across some writing from Dr. Elizabeth Hodge, a psychiatrist at the Centre of Anxiety and Traumatic Stress Disorders in Massachusetts General Hospital. That's a, imagine that being your career, that's a bit of a mouthful. And she described that people with anxiety have problems dealing with and distancing thoughts that have too much power, and explains that they can struggle to distinguish between a problem-solving thought and a nagging worry that has no benefit. If you have unproductive worries, says Hodge, you can train yourself to experience those thoughts differently. You may think, I'm late, I might lose my job if I don't get there on time, and it will be a disaster. Whereas mindfulness or meditation teaches you to recognise, oh, there's that thought again, I've been here before, but it's just a thought and not part of my core self. And I particularly love that at the end, not part of my core self. And we talk about that a little bit with our guest as well. Yeah, and and she was brilliant at explaining that actually and we I said to you my daughter at school who's 10 had a fantastic lesson she came home telling me all about that they were talking about mindfulness strip meditation I think theirs was really about feelings and emotions and they described it to the kids as a pond and there were all these fish in the pond and you're the pond 
but your feelings, stroke emotions, stroke thoughts, so I guess, are the fish. So no matter what those fish are doing, they're coming and going and they're in and out and they're swimming all around. No matter what, you're always the pond and the fish are your thoughts or your feelings. So they're not you. And just recognising that and putting in, in that in such a beautiful way. I was so like, pleased at the school. I was so excited. I was like, thank you. And our guest said, didn't she, that young kids are able to just pick up this work. And it goes back to what we're trying to do, you know, the proactive work that needs to be done around mental health. You're right. And I think there's something really reassuring about the way they've taught that. There's something consistent about you. You remain the pond. The fish do their thing, you know, as yeah. fish do. And I think that's a really lovely way of describing it to kids. But actually, I think we can all get something from that. An example that springs to mind for me is so often I think we can have experiences where these things escalate, where maybe we stub our toe when we get out of bed or we get a bit of toothpaste on our tie or whatever small thing it can be can seemingly start off a bad day and then mm. more and more bad things happen and you start getting frustrated that the traffic lights are taking so long and on another day you may not have cared or if you're running late for work that can ruin your whole day and when you're experiencing mental illness that can feel constant it can feel like these stressy thoughts that you didn't ask for, you do not want, are coming in day in, day out. Mm. And actually them being unrelated to reality doesn't necessarily make them any easier. And I love that in terms of what meditation can do as almost like a bit of a reset button. You know, it can't fix everything, but it's like a muscle we can work at to try and calm these thoughts back down simplify things without doing what I think I talk about a little bit in the interview of trying to distract myself but really I may be giving myself another thing to think about. I think that's a really good point Bobby and I think what you've done there is you know we're not out here talking about meditation solves everything we understand there's a big spectrum and a lot of people struggling with mental ill health on completely different levels One, I think the meditation and proactive mental health, especially with younger people in the next generation, helps to maybe help reduce those layers that you also spoke about, that it getting worse and worse and worse. You know, what you just said then is absolutely right. There are layers to this. But I think we all could do with giving meditation a bit of a go. Mm. I've never meditated, but I do sit in my thoughts. I think I do, but I just don't label it. Yeah, well, a lot of your work is around remaining present and trying to not get dragged into ruminations over the past or the future. So I think you've probably maybe more on the mindfulness side of it. You're taking a lot of the techniques. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't say, now I'm going to meditate. Yeah, well, it's different for everyone, but, but maybe you should, maybe you should try it. I know. Go get the Headspace app or you can attend one of our guests' online sessions. Get a map. Get Marcus onto you. He'd... <laughs> Marcus is, is up for phoning somebody and doing a meditation like 98% of the time. Oh, I have had an online meditation session with Marcus actually in one episode, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, we did have some meditation actually. His voice is very appealing when it comes to that relaxation and chilling out, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I've even said that to him, actually, that there's something in that. The fact that he's got like a a regional, you know, greater Manchester accent and he's just a straightforward bloke in in many ways. You know, I think there's actually such power in that, that sometimes we can think about these concepts as very far away from us and very hypothetical. 
And so it's quite nice to have someone in my own life that I've known for years and has become involved in meditation since I've known him and seen how much that's changed his whole outlook, really. It's really great to see. And and he's someone that is very relatable. You know, he stops this from being a a faraway concept for me because it's, you know, it's still my mate Marcus. Marcus, He still makes like silly jokes, but also has this zen inside him. I don't know if I'm describing it well, but I I love that. You are. And I think that's what Lucy and other, can I say modern day, I don't know, meditation practitioners would want moving forward, you know, for it to be that meditation works and for anybody from any walks of life and therefore more teachers and practitioners of meditation to be more your Marcuses. You know, I don't want to say normal because I don't think, I think normal is boring and Marcus definitely isn't that. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> do, your everyday do we guy, know if Marcus is normal? <laughs> <laughs> no. but you know what I mean? The everyday guy or girl, not maybe what we perceive meditation practitioners to be. Yeah. That's the way to get more people involved. Yeah. And you're right. It does work for all kinds of people. And the research really backs it up. So we've got a study here, for example, published in the Psychiatry Review back in April 2018 that found individuals with generalized anxiety disorder, which we talk a little bit about in the episode, who participated in mindfulness based stress reduction programs. So mindfulness and meditation are both involved in those had a greater reduction in stress markers than a control group. And they're often quite short courses. We're rarely talking longer than eight weeks. And yet people can notice a real difference. And in addition to that, with other conditions, the mental discipline you can develop through meditation can help you break dependency and increase your self-control and awareness of triggers for addictive behaviours. And that's from healthline.com. So really broad benefits here and so up your street because it's proactive with our ability to bounce back from traumatic situations, with our ability to slow down our thoughts at a time when it feels like the world is so chaotic. Absolutely. And having been in the interview with Lucy and having had a lot going on, like with most people in my life at the moment, somebody in my life who is constantly busy and trying to do the next thing and build the next thing and do this and do that and I just felt like you have gone down so many different avenues and has also been ill physically ill you know this person's feeling really unwell a lot but the one thing that hasn't been tried is anything to do with mental health medita- and this would be the kind of practice that I would introduce to them because it's simple and effective I believe you know, and if it doesn't work, maybe it doesn't work. If it takes a few times, maybe it takes a few times. But I think that you'd get, like you said, eight weeks, most of these courses, but at least you're learning how to meditate. And maybe one day it would come in and help you feel better. These are practices and that are simple and free. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In many cases, you can just start this completely on your own. I'm the kind of person that I think I need the, the human interaction element as Teacher. part of it. There's so many options and I'd almost be tempted to challenge you to go be an example. Yeah, you go do a course and then tell them how wonderful it is. I'm 100% going to do that. Well, Lucy gave us a bit of a technique. We won't go into it, didn't she, in the interview. And I'm going to practice that. I'm going to look it up, research it, and I'm going to do it. So I'll let you know how I get on. Brilliant. And so we've mentioned her name a few times already. So Lucy Stone is our guest today. She's a meditation practitioner, a mixture of like adults and corporate environments privately, but also she goes into schools. And so she's taught over 15,000 kids how to meditate. 
Wow. And that's incredible. And she joined us having just taught another 300. And she was there in a whole sparkly outfit because she finds it helps, you know, keep them engaged and helps almost set the scene that she comes in and she doesn't really look like the other teachers. She's an outside person and it seems to get them intrigued and I'm sure benefits so much from what she teaches. So really delighted to be joined by Lucy. She was actually recommended by a previous guest, also called Lucy, but Lucy Nickel, who did an episode with us all about stereotypes, which is definitely one of my favourites if you want to scroll back and find that one. For now, though, we'll get into the episode with Lucy Stone. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. Today, we're talking about one of our new lockdown favourites. Stitch Fix is a way to get the personal stylist experience from home without the cost. They take the stress out of shopping by sending a selection of clothes picked to your style preferences, and you only get charged for what you keep. So how do they do it? Well, you simply fill out the online quiz to get started and you'll be automatically matched to one of their brilliant stylists. We had so much fun with this and were intrigued by how detailed it actually was. It takes into account not just your size, but also your preferred fit, how formal or casual you like to dress, your favourite or even avoided colours and so much more. Brilliant. And then a week later, we each got a box. For me, this included a jumper that I really liked, a kind of funky shirt, which I may have not normally ever looked at, but decided to keep and some jeans. Yeah, and I kept an amazing coat, which 100% was my style, and I wouldn't have gone into the shop, really, generally, that it came from. So I was buzzing about that. Um, I've even had a second box and kept an item from that, too. Oh, I don't even know about this yet. That's exciting. Yeah, I needed to tell you about it. Yeah, and you can join us in trying this great service at stitchfix.co.uk slash mental. Make sure to use the show name so they know we sent you. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash mental. It really is a lot of fun and super interesting to see how someone else would dress me. So do give them a try. We're confident you won't regret it. As a nation, we are back inside and online loads. One way I'm coping is getting into Christmas TV early with the help of ExpressVPN. It lets you control where digital services think you are based. It's as simple as selecting a location and reopening Netflix, Disney Plus or others to access otherwise unavailable content. For example, you can see Elf, one of my favourite Christmas films, by switching to Australian Netflix. Plus, this service can work across all your devices so you can stream on a smart TV with the family or a laptop in bed if you want to be away from them. And all of this happens while ExpressVPN is seamlessly encrypting your data to protect your privacy. So you can be confident digital ads aren't tracking you and websites aren't seeing if you've shopped at their competitor, which is brilliant. For sure. And you can join us on this safer and more global internet. Just go to expressvpn.com slash DMH, stands for Destigmatizing Mental Health, to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. So that's expressvpn.com slash DMH, expressvpn.com slash DMH. More TV is something I can definitely feel optimistic about right now and has me in the Christmassy mood already. It's at least worth a try, so please support them as they support us. I'm Lucy Stone, and I guess the first time I ever really felt there might be something wrong, if that's the right word, with my mental health, when I was quite young, really, I was one of those 
dance and drama fanatics, always trying to be on the stage at any given opportunity and even creating opportunities when there weren't any shows in my living room and that kind of thing for my grandparents. But as I began to become a bit more aware of my body and who I was and maybe people being unkind or realising I had a sense of awareness, I began to get really scared about going on the stage, even though I loved it. It was everything I wanted to do. I grew up in a very rural area in West Somerset, so a very farming community. The term mental health was never talked about. In fact, people would just sort of push me from the wings onto the stage and just say, come on, get over it. You've just got a bit of stage fright. This is good for you. As I was freaking out in my fairy costume in the Christmas pantomime. And I think no one was being unkind then. They were very loving. I had a very loving upbringing, childhood, small village community. I think the awareness just wasn't there that this could be anything other than a child having a bit of a tantrum but actually inside I was terrified it was like being on stage at the Albert Hall with everyone laughing and pointing at me of course they weren't but that's how it felt and my heart would race and I would feel sweaty and I now realize in retrospect it was signs of anxiety and and that maybe even at times uh, you know a panic attack because now in later life I've had those things and I remember those feelings but I don't think anyone was being, as I say, unkind. And I, and I actually don't think I heard the phrase mental health until I was at university. So I'm early 40s now. So this is 20 odd years ago. So I think a lot has changed, thankfully, you know, in the time since I grew up. But I also think it was because of where I grew up. You know, they were very loving, but the awareness of mental health was not talked about if it was there at all. Wow, there's a lot there and yet it's a very common experience for a lot of people. And it makes me think about a lot of the difficulties that can exist in rural communities that unfortunately can sometimes feed into that stigma. You know, if maybe there's there's socioeconomic issues, if there's maybe employment issues, particularly in areas that are traditionally farming areas, and that's a much harder world and a lot less employment in it, then there can be such strain on communities which in itself can cause mental health problems. But often the reaction to that, if there's not also the understanding, is push your feelings down, do your best, don't acknowledge it because it's survival for a lot of people. I think as well, I mean, I work with children now and thankfully, although there's a lot long way to go, there's a lot more awareness in the teaching staff, in the assistants, in us as parents. We know the signs to look out for. I mean, we're only talking, you know, there's 30 years between me and my my son, who's 12. But I think we've come on so far in that time, as I say, thankfully, and there's still a long way to go. But you're right. I think, yeah, I had a very, very lucky childhood. I grew up in a beautiful part of the world. But as I say, mental health was never talked about. I, I sometimes think to myself now when I'm standing, okay, not right now, but recently, when I'm standing at a bar, over a cocktail talking to my friend about anxiety or depression whether that's with ourselves or you know people we know we're openly talking about mental health standing at a bar I think most people in their 20s 30s 40s would feel comfortable with that but go beyond that 50s 60s 70s and and I think that isn't the case and certainly my mum's generation would never 
have talked in public about their own issues or people they were concerned about. I wanted to just highlight what you mentioned about the kind of intent behind what I would describe as stigmatising behaviour, you know, the way that things weren't acknowledged with you or you were encouraged to just ignore the feelings that were genuine struggles of yours and instead just literally pushed out on the stage. You know, you're right to say that that's not always with ill intent. And I would say never with mine, actually. You know, if my family are listening, I don't <laughs> I don't feel like that was done. And actually, do you know what? I probably didn't tell them exactly how I was feeling also. I think when you're growing up, you think nobody feels the same as you, whether that's to do with your gender or your physical appearance or your mental health. You think you're the only one in the world that feels like this. And I think, again, conversation has got better by generation and also cross-generation, like my son talks to his friends more than I talk to mine. And I think when you're growing up, you think this is just how it is. And I still, to a certain extent, don't know what is not, you should feel nervous when you step on a stage. But at what point do those nerves become something that you should talk to somebody about? So there's that as well, that there's that what's normal normal adrenaline pumping through your body in a stressful or exciting situation is what makes us human you know we're not trying to get rid of that but it's just finding our way the conversation is much better on the whole these days and I'm really pleased about that yeah that's what we're all about but where it gets dicey that you don't have to have this bad intent in order to be stigmatizing (laughs) and it's often exactly like you've described growing up not knowing what's a me thing versus an everyone thing, not really being taught about emotions and them being normal and them being human, and in that, therefore, being acceptable. And then it's quite obvious that you can then start to have funny feelings towards other people's emotions if you've not really got the support in understanding your own. You know, finding that balance, I suppose. Yeah. And so you mentioned really the first time you heard about mental health and these specific terms being used was then in university. So how had your mental health progressed up to that point? I mean, the term imposter syndrome is banded about. And whether you think it's a normal behaviour that we all kind of play down our skills. I got into a really good university, got into Warwick. I did law at university, which was one of the best. I threw law at that time. And I went from my little village to this university where everyone was seemingly cooler than me and cleverer than me. And I began to feel that this was not where I should be. But I got the grades and I thought, well, on paper, I should be here. But this is what am I doing doing a law degree? I'm never going to be a lawyer. And I began to get quite panicky at university. I was also in the rowing team. So my friends, we used to go to yoga. And that's where I got into yoga. And what I found best about yoga, and I think a lot of people will relate to this, is the lying down bit at the end, (laughs) where the lady or the man talks to you in a really lovely, calm voice, and you might even fall asleep. And don't worry, I've had this happen to me a lot as a yoga teacher. And those 12, 15 minutes were the best bits of my week. And I began to feel calm and a bit more like myself. And my friend suggested, Lucy, you do realise you could just go to meditation and do that bit not the whole yoga as well. Okay, go for the stretch. Great, you need to because you're rowing. But for mental health, I immediately found sanctuary in what I then realised was 
meditation or mindfulness. So I enrolled on a course and it absolutely changed my life. From that point, and I can pinpoint the moment where it clicked for me, and it did take a while, reader, it does take a while for meditation to kind of work for a lot of people. Yeah, and and that was 20 years ago. And here I am now, journalism and a PR career behind me. I'm now, for the last five years, been working exclusively as a yoga and meditation teacher teaching children all the way through to your your granny so it's brilliant and I feel like I found my calling my purpose in life and I feel incredibly lucky to be doing what I'm doing I love that and before we get into that I have to know about this point what was that specific point where it clicked for you it was an actual physical feeling, actually, Bobby. It was a physical feeling of when I was sitting in the now meditation class and it was about three or four weeks in and we were doing the technique and I felt like I had electric kind of tingles going through my body and I felt like that feeling when you've had one glass of wine, maybe two, depending <laughs> on how tolerant you are, but you know that kind of feeling where you feel like everything's all right and you feel really relaxed and you feel like you're happy and you can take on the world and you've got a little bit of confidence, not overconfident, but just that kind of feeling. And I felt it from the top of my head, the crown of my head, all the way down my body, tingles all the way down to my toes. And I thought, all I'm doing is sitting here breathing. What on earth is happening to me? And then I was able to recreate that feeling at home without the wine. (laughs) And whenever I chose, I could be sitting in a car or on a bus or on an airplane. I could tap into that feeling. And I knew I had something that I needed in my life. And that is it. It was a physical feeling, which I then could recreate whenever I needed to, which was amazing. Wow. That's brilliant. And I think (laughs) you've highlighted there what a wonderful antidote it is to our busy, hectic lives. That so often our default answer is, I'm struggling, I've got to do more. Or I'm worried about my career, I've got to work harder. Or I'm worried about Mm. my kids, I've now got to like exhaust myself reading 10 parenting books. Like we we can get (laughs) so extreme with our solutions. And Mm. meditation is a really lovely opposite to that, where actually in doing less, in finding silence, even at times finding finding a bit of boredom in the process, you can actually find a sense of peace as well. The biggest compliment a child gives me in my meditation class is when they put their hand up and say, Miss, I'm bored. I said, brilliant, this is exactly what we're looking for. And they look at me puzzled. They can't quite work out because I'm I'm a parent. I'm probably guilty of having done this, of over-diarising my child's life you know, okay, what club are you going to do tonight? And what are you going to do here? And the weekend, we're going to do this. And my son's 12 now. So for yesterday, he spent a lot of the time on the sofa. And I I was a bit eye twitchy about it, Bobby, I won't lie. But I know he needs that. He's a teenager, almost teenager. He needs that time to stop. And there's lots of people have written this phrase, but we are human beings, not human doings. We need to stop and we need to be and we need to feel and we need to be present. And the the biggest bit of advice, and I have been a workaholic and I burned out in my PR career, which 
is why I retrained to be a yoga and meditation teacher. I wish I'd been meditating when I was working in that field because I would have been a lot more productive. Actually, when you stop, when you go back to the thing that you're churning over in your head, it just suddenly becomes clear and you do it 10 times quicker. So this thought, people often say to me, I haven't got time to meditate. And someone were very wise, and I'm trying to think who it was now, said, the busier you are, the more stressed you are, actually, more, the more meditation you should do, which sounds like a crazy suggestion. But actually, you'll be more productive, you'll feel better, and you'll probably be feeling happier as well. Right. And I think that's something very relatable for me at the moment, because certainly in lockdown, I've fallen foul of something that makes even less sense, which is working from (laughs) home more. Oftentimes, if I'm feeling busy and stressed, you can get into this state of, I don't know what my next task is. I know I've got so many tasks and so many things I need to catch up on. And you get this kind of burnout symptom where it's just so overwhelming, you struggle to even make decisions on what to do next. And then what can be far too easy, and I've, you know, put settings on my phone to try and snap me out of this recently, is then you can just end up on social media. Because you just, you think, (laughs) oh, I'll just, you know, I'll check the news or I'll check something. And then you end up on social media or on it, or it can be a news website. And then you're scrolling and the scrolling feels like... You're down the black hole. Exactly. But it feels productive. It feels like you're doing something and what you're actually doing is procrastinating. Absolutely. I'm a natural procrastinator and I have a number of techniques. One of them, if people want to Google it, is called Nadi Shodhana. It's spelled N-A-D-I-S-H-O-D-H-A-N-A, Shodhana. And that is alternate nostril breathing. And you can find it on YouTube. There's a video of mine on, on my website too. And what that does, you cannot think of anything else when you're doing that because you are switching between nostrils as you breathe. And what that does is completely focuses the mind. So it's a really, really good technique, for example, that you can use, even if it's a breath technique, you can use, say, for five minutes as a mini meditation. So if you're feeling like, okay, my list is two pages long, two screens long, (laughs) I feel like I'm going to be on Instagram a bit today because I don't want to face up to the fact that my list is two screens long. I'm just going to sit for five minutes and then I'm going to hit that list and always do the thing you don't want to do and then the rest is easy. I love that. And I think that is one of the most straightforward ways for people to try this out. I first came across that, I think, with Lady Gaga on World Mental Health Day last year, I think did one of those. And to help people kind of visualise it, it's where you press one side of your nose yeah. and breathe in, I think, and then breathe out with the other. Is that the right way? Yeah, you open your thumb and breathe in. You seal the thumb, you hold it across the top, and then you let it out through the finger, through the left nostril. Then you breathe in through the left nostril. You seal your finger on your left nostril. You hold it and you let it out through the thumb. And you just keep repeating that. That was one round, but you can't think of anything else. If you try, if I ask you questions while you're doing it, you won't be able to answer them or you'll lose your trail of thought. So one thing has to give. So if you really want to focus the mind, trying something like Nadi Shodhana, alternate nostril breathing, is an absolute winner. I'll do it for five minutes. I'll write my list, I'll do it, and then I'll get on with things. Doing the first thing you don't want to do first, and then you're away. And it does exactly the opposite (laughs) of what I've been having with the social media, where it gives me more things to think about. This instead distracts you. And I mean, social media is addictive, isn't it? And what and and meditation has been used 
people of addictive personalities for whatever they're addicted to whether it's shopping gambling drink whatever it is like I was saying to you reaching for that glass of wine would be the natural thing and a lot of people do and I have done in my time you know mums at work get home have a glass of wine while they cook tea just have five ten minutes as I call it coming off the ceiling just Mm -hmm. decompressing from the day and then rather than reaching for that wine or a cigarette or buying some cushions that I don't need online, I just feel everything. I mean, we all need cushions. I mean, look at look at them. I mean, ridiculous. We, we, <laughs> for the listeners, you're, um, you're holding up a glittery yeah. star cushion, which is very cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all need to release and find that thing that helps us. And for me, that has been meditation and yeah you're talking about social media and again when I was working in PR I used to say that accessing my phone was to check work emails to my partner but I would go from that email that wasn't there to Instagram to checking a news website to checking Twitter you know getting involved in doing a quiz and 10-15 minutes later you don't know your partner's you're right. It's everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. You know, the email wasn't even there, but you just got distracted. I think what meditation does, if I can just say really simply, it changes the way we deal with our thoughts. So your thought is, I've got 10 minutes, I'm at a bus stop, I'm going to look at my social media. But what about texting someone you haven't spoken to for a while instead? You know, it's making those life decisions and actually when you get the text back oh Bobby so lovely to hear from you that's going to give you an even bigger buzz than you would have got from seeing someone you don't even like anymore on Instagram (laughs) if you see what I mean so it's about making those little choices and if it helps you know write two or three things down that this is what I could do rather than you know be on social media and don't get me wrong I'm on social media too but it's that default behavior isn't it that kind of uncontrolled behavior looking for that buzz that we could get another way in a healthier way and that's very much a link between meditation and mindfulness you know that both are important ways to stay present but mindfulness I think is often pitched as the one that's that almost put simply you don't have to close your eyes for you know that's the one where you get to do it in your day-to-day life and people can apply that to anything you know people can apply it to like mindful eating where they try and actually focus on the food rather than the default of watching the tv whenever you eat there's all these distractions we build into our lives and it can take away our autonomy we find ourselves defaulting to certain routines without actually even knowing sometimes whether those routines are making us happy or unhappy. It's taking away the autopilot of meditation. So, you know, we, we've all been in a car and or had a journey and not known how we've got there, not noticed anything on the way there. You're absolutely right. Mindfulness is adopting behavior in your everyday. So I run. So I love to have like a mindful run and I will look up at the sky and notice the trees. And actually, do you know what? I try and use Instagram for mindfulness, which sounds crazy. But if I see a lovely view, I will take it and just pop it on my story. Because stopping to appreciate things that we otherwise would have just ignored or become mundane. So the tree that you walk past every day, take a picture of it and then zoom in and notice all the bits of that bark and the leaves and how there's a bird there or whatever. You can, I'm not anti-social media at all. You can use it for good because actually quite, you know, you can share that picture 
some people might quite like it. Even the froth on a good cappuccino is, <laughs> you know, you can have a mindful experience with that if you like. It's absolutely fine. But meditation is one step more. And it is to do with just slowing everything down, not engaging externally. So people can't meditate and run because you are looking out for cars and holes in the road. You can have a mindfulness experience when you run or mindfully run. Yet on the whole, meditation is when you're still with your eyes closed or your gaze softened and you're really focusing inward on the present moment without judgment on purpose. And that's your definition. Brilliant. Very good definition. I love it. <laughs> and also then you've talked about your own experience with anxiety. So how has that linked in with meditation for you? I think when with meditation, one of the biggest ways that it's helped me is it stopped me trying to compare my life with others. And I think, I mean, I'm a mum and when I was working in PR, I was a full-time working mum in Bath, which is quite a wealthy area. There were quite a lot of mums at that time that weren't working. And it was easy for me at the school gate. I felt a bit like Motherland, if you've ever seen that. I felt a bit like the crazy one, <laughs> the one that was always forgetting things. And it was very easy to compare myself, to physically see that they have seemed to have all of their stuff together. And here I am dropping a PE kit and forgetting the lunch money and handing my child over. And then I'm going stressed already to work where I'm now dealing with million pound advertising budget and doing my best to keep my team motivated when I'm falling apart inside. And I think when I picked up meditation again around this time, when I was feeling really like I was failing at life, bad partner, bad mum, bad work boss, bad friend, bad daughter everything I began to realize that everybody felt the same again a bit like when I was a child and everyone feels like they're not doing enough and then I just began to I know it sounds a bit hippie I'm really sorry began to sort of love who I was again slowly I wasn't really loving myself at that point but slowly I began to say look no you do this Freddie your son does love you and you are a good part and, and eventually pick myself back off the floor and I did that through meditation by distancing myself from the situation being present and realizing I had a nice house and that I was healthy and these little victories over time and beginning to realize I wasn't such a bad person those two things came together in like a perfect storm really and I began to feel better and I think that's it with anxiety you're anxious that for me I was always anxious I wasn't doing enough or I wasn't enough myself or somebody else and as soon as you realize you are enough and that you are loved and you know you you are a loving person you you know you should try and love yourself a little bit more and be kinder and meditation helps you do that help you deal with that inner critic that we all have it doesn't silence it but it puts it in its box basically and doesn't really let it have the spotlight that it's trying to have so you try and find a bit more of a true sense of who you are so I think that's how meditation has helped with my anxiety. It's great to hear and it's interesting though you describing that your inner critics even coming out trying to write it off as sounding a bit yeah, hippie. Yeah or, you're right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm just imagining myself listening to this because we chatted before we came on air about misconceptions of meditation and I do want to get over the fact that meditation isn't just for hippies and that's why I said it it's about the fact that by me sounding <laughs> hippie I'm worried about me kind of 
magnifying that misconception because it really isn't. It's for everybody from a four-year-old to a chief executive to your grandma to an athlete to people that are on the stage, funnily enough, that I'm working with. You know, it's for everybody. To me, it's for you. It doesn't have to be a certain type of person. You don't have to follow a certain religion. It's for everyone because ultimately... All different religions have used meditation throughout history, and it's about a physical effect on your body. When you meditate, it puts the brakes on your fight and flight response. It calms everything down. And at the moment, with everything that's going on, we're all often, not all, but many of us will be in fight or flight mode without even realizing it. When you see the breaking news thing that comes up on the the tv screen you you're desperate to see what the words are going to be on that red box that comes across because we're so used to hearing bad story after scary story after worrying story after oh my gosh you know and and just that constant churn and social media as well you were saying about working from home we haven't got that disconnect work is merging into home and personal lives you know we could look at our laptop across the room at night and think oh maybe I will just do that email so I haven't got to do it in the morning so you're conscious you know all the time that you could be doing more and it's kind of calling you from the other side and you've got to be strong and go no it can wait and now's my time to read meditate watch Netflix whatever it is this is your time just to be away from those things but I do think that many of us are in a kind of fight or flight response without really realising it. And I think meditation helps you to be aware of it. And that's helpful. Yeah, I really agree. The only thing I disagree with is I don't think you did sound hippie-ish, you know, or that <laughs> in, in the way you describe things. I don't even know if I like the word hippie-ish, but I, <laughs> I think we can feel this. And I think in it is a type of stigma that we can feel bad about self-love, we can feel bad about self-care because we equate the word self as a negative. That to be selfish. in any way self-focused yeah. is exactly to be selfish. And I personally want to really rebrand that to self-aware because suddenly that's so yeah. much more attractive. Nobody wants to not understand how they come across. So you're trying to do that, but actually maybe some of whether it's in a critic or a bit of stigma you know, you're almost trying to kind of anticipate misconception. But in fact, what you're saying is is really universal, that meditation can apply to everyone. Self-acceptance is really important. And like I said, is really self-awareness, because by understanding your experiences, understanding your mental health struggles, you can do something about it. And that helps everyone, mm. you know, that helps your kids, that helps your colleagues, you know. That's... I always say that meditation has that ripple effect, that if you meditate, or if I meditate, if one meditates, then we are presenting ourselves differently. And whether that's in a post office queue or driving, the way that, you know, we've had a stressful day, the fact that I can process that before I turn to my son when he asks for a second packet of crisps and not be really angry. I'm not continuing that stress. I've learned how to process it and not to layer. I think you're absolutely right. I think the ripple effect of meditation or even self-care or self-awareness, whatever you want to call it, I think self-awareness is really good. It will rub off on other people. I think it's a, it's a good role model to be. Definitely, because the opposite is true. 
if you're stressed, I think that kind of resonates with the stress of other people. Mm. You'll remind them of their own stress that maybe they're trying to ignore just to get through the day. And instead, there's something we could all do almost as a social responsibility to try and get rid of that. Mm. You know, I, I think that is part of my hope for the future and my hope for getting rid of stigma, that it's not just about looking out for other people and being kinder to each other. We have to also be kind to ourselves as part of that process. It starts with us, doesn't it? I think, but I think in saying that, I have had some dark times in my life when I almost feel guilty for feeling the way that I do. And I don't want to burden anyone with my problems or my family or anything like that. And I think that if, if someone listening to this is feeling you know, sad or depressed or anxious in some way, they shouldn't feel guilty. The fact that they're aware of how they're feeling is, is a brilliant thing. And there are people that can help, obviously. But I think that sometimes you can almost put pressure on yourself to not feel that way. Do you know what I mean? Or feel guilty for feeling that way? Yeah, it's a real challenge judging those feelings. And many mental health conditions make that worse. You know, depression, Mm -hmm. it can affect your self-esteem, the way that you're feeling, and then judging yourself for it. With anxiety, oftentimes you realise that a lot of these feelings are disproportionate, and then you blame yourself for them. And that doesn't actually get you anywhere. It doesn't help you. And so I loved what you mentioned about meditation being a way that you started to feel more like yourself, because I think that's something that's really key, that so often we look at it as a way to, like you've said, pause that fight or flight. We look at it in terms of a way to kind of de-stress and take a moment for ourselves. We look at all these very important ways that it can benefit us. But also I think there's a step further to that that can be ignored which is not just how it reduces things but also things it can give you and it sounds a bit like the way you're describing it that part of what it gave you was that awareness of the difference between what is an anxiety thought and something that I shouldn't be worried about versus an actual concern that I need to take action on. I think you're right I think a lot of people I'm I'm 40 42 and around my age and I think going on to like 50s as well, we kind of lose our way. And I think maybe maybe when you're younger, you do this, but you kind of not sure who you are. You think you should be, maybe when you're younger, you think you should be like the other, other people. And then maybe you sort of find yourself for a while in your 30s and you kind of feel this is right. Or, you know, I'm a parent, this is what I should be doing. It feels okay. And then when the children begin to not, need you so much anymore you, you think what's left I'm a carer of them brilliant but they don't really need me my career is okay brilliant but it's that kind of identity like take me back to the girl on the stage when I was seven and now a woman who's a businesswoman and a meditation teacher and a mother and a partner what do we have in common what's that our kind of core value you know we're the same person and I think it's getting to those things is quite difficult and actually meditation can help with that you listen to yourself you hear that kind of you hear that sort of seven-year-old still say god I, you know I feel like this and actually I, I still feel like that at 42 and I think you're right you can sort of lose track by trying to be who you think you should be and I think it can help you just remember who you are absolutely and for me certainly in my own experience it's helped with reminding me of my priorities I think I naively went into try meditation for the first time ever thinking, 
I clear my mind and I think of nothing but darkness and then was frustrated with myself that that's not possible. You know, that's not how our minds work. But instead in learning what meditation actually is and that it's more to do with not stopping the thoughts because that in itself is kind of straining and quite stressful, but instead seeing the thoughts come and go and finding a way to acknowledge them in a in a more peaceful and a less judgmental way, I actually started to find things I didn't realize. You know, if I did it for a few days in a row, it might be the same thoughts that are coming up. And I think, oh, I really do need to do something about that. <laughs> because maybe it was something I was pushing down and ignoring. But then when you actually sit with yourself and focus on the breath and these thoughts come as they do, you can start to notice these patterns. I couldn't put it better myself. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, perfectly described. I think you're right. And the more of us that can say the myth of emptying the mind is exactly that. It's a myth. You you are human. It's not possible to empty your mind. And, you know, with my work with children, it's not just about finding peace and stillness. It's about meditation for creativity or meditation to help you concentrate and focus better or meditations to wake you up in the morning, or meditations to help you get on the stage, meditation to help you calm down if you've had an argument at at lunchtime in the playground. So it's a whole range of emotions, and you can do different things in meditation to, to, to kind of remedy and to help with those situations. I've been through grief in the last six months, losing my mother, and that's an awful awful situation and meditation definitely helped with that process I I was able to continue to function as a mum and as a as a business owner with people working for me who relied on me I'm not saying that anyone who's grieving and can't do that is is in any way wrong it's such a personal journey grief but I know if I'd grieved in that way 10 years ago when I was stressed working in PR it would have been a whole different story it really would and I have to say as well I think people think meditation teachers turn to the mat and get on the mat every single day regardless that there was a time when I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts as you've just said Bobby you know you don't empty your mind you do have thoughts there and I couldn't bring myself to meditate for a good few weeks, which was the longest gap I'd had in years. And I could actually immediately feel the stress coming back. And I recognize it as a different pattern of behavior than just the stress of sorting out my mum's funeral and all of those things. I could feel that panic coming back and that inability to prioritize or, like you were saying, not able to realize what job to do first it was all coming back and I know when I meditate that doesn't happen so I just vowed to myself actually it was quite a an emotional first meditation because I used to speak to my mum every Sunday night around nine o'clock when my son was in bed and we would just chat for an hour about what happened that week so I decided at nine o'clock on that Sunday a few weeks after she died to sit on my mat my yoga mat and to talk to her and to allow the conversation I would have had on the phone to come and go in my mind. I physically spoke to her. Why did you have to go? And it was too early. And why didn't you do that? You know, I was, there was a sense of grief and anger that I needed to sort of get out. And tears 
were flooding. You know, I'm almost crying now telling you about it because it was a really emotional experience. And it, it was, you know, what I needed to do. But it was a meditation because I wasn't, I was sitting there on purpose. I was focusing on my breath. I was focusing on trying to talk to my mum. And it was an amazing experience and one that I think helped with my grief and might help others if they're in that situation. Just, just sit there and let anything that needs to come to come and, and to talk to people afterwards if you want to, you know, take that further. But it was amazing. And I don't think I would have done that, as I said, 10, 15 years ago. I would have just tried to bury those feelings. But I looked them straight in the eye and went, that's what I need to do. And it really helped. Mm. And that's so powerful because you'd given yourself that safe space. That it's so common for people when they're grieving, particularly closest loved ones, to see them or, or hear them. You just, they're so in your mind that that can kind of play out. And the great thing about how you approach that is you went into it being like, she is so in my mind and I have so many questions and you don't have the answers for them. And that is part of grieving. But you gave yourself this safe space to explore that. You use the skills you'd spent all those years building up. You know, that's a good example of how it doesn't matter who you are. We can all fall into the traps of forgetting what we know. You know, you can be a meditation expert and then something bad happens and you fall back into bad habits of how to deal with it. But instead, by drawing on your actual experience, the things you'd learned, you found a way that not only was was safer, but you also, by the sounds of it, found some kind of answer in what are really unanswerable questions. Yeah, I think so. I describe meditation as my antihistamine. So I get hay fever. And I take my antihistamine and, you know, even on the days I don't sneeze and then I don't sneeze. And it's, it's exactly that. If I stop taking my antihistamine, I'll get hay fever. So I see meditation a bit like my antihistamine is my hay fever. It's my, you know, method of dealing with stress and regulating my emotions a little bit. Not that we need to too much. But when I stop doing it, as I mentioned, those old habits, the sneezing comes back. And it's as simple as that. When we're feeling fine, we don't feel like we need to do anything about it. We just enjoy that moment. And yeah, of course we should. But we should never, when we've had mental health challenges or just generally, never take for granted, you know, the, the groundwork, the brain training that you do in the background can help improve your life, even when you're already feeling great. And we all want you to feel great but it might even make you feel better. Who knows? Mm, for sure. And that's a lovely proactive way of looking at it. So we will finish up, I think, on that positive note. If people want to find out more about your work and maybe even partake in some of it, where should they go online? So Meditation Rocks is my company. And there's three parts to Meditation Rocks. There's a part for individuals, there's a part for schools, there's a part for businesses. And we provide on-demand and live meditation sessions every day. And that's meditationrocks.co.uk. Or on social media, we are Meditation Rocks Official. I also have a yoga studio where we're teaching yoga and meditation online at the moment, which is the Hive Yoga Studio in Bath. Brilliant. And I love that so much of this is digital. You've really responded to though people are still able to get all of this. Yeah, I mean, Meditation Rock started in the first lockdown. I just went live on Facebook every day. And then people were sort of saying, please don't stop. 
So I realized there was a need. And so over the summer, converted Meditation Box from a Facebook page into a subscription website. So something positive for me came out of lockdown one. Brilliant. Well, we will wrap up there then. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough.